listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for Monday, May 23 to Friday, May 27th. A few highlights this week, including, so you had a fascinating story about bees. Sure did. <laughs> and uh, also we had Dr, no, it was a professor, Ian Lowe, <laughs> came in to talk about his book, The Lucky Country, Reinventing Australia. Gerard, Jared Elson, rather, uh, was reviewing um, the new book, Men. It was fascinating. Zora Sanders was talking about unusual wills and bequests. <laughs> you might wonder what that old-timey sound means. It means that Zora Sanders is here to talk weird well, history. Well, that was exciting. That was the first time I've heard that. It was everything that I ever dreamed. Do you like that? This is the first time in your life you've ever had a theme song and that is your... That is I don't you. know. I don't know that you why you would assume that's the first time. <laughs> oh, I've never had a theme song. <laughs> Cool. It just plays before I enter a room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, today we're talking about last wills and testaments. Yeah, and uh, where better to start than with William Shakespeare. Tenuous, tenuous. Well, so William Shakespeare's will is relatively famous as far as wills go um, because he famously left his second best bed to his wife and people have taken this... Well, people have read a lot of things into his will because we don't know that much much about William Shakespeare. We know more than sometimes people assume, but um, we don't know that much. And, and so a person's last will and testament can tell you quite a lot about about them. And um, there is, yeah, so there's a famously a clause. He, he, he gives, he had two daughters and he gives his estate to um, the, the elder daughter, Susanna, and a bit of money to um, Judith. He was a reasonably wealthy man by the time he died. Um, and the only provision for his 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 wife Anne Hathaway is the second best bed, and people have often been like, oh, "Yeah, just, why the know, second proof, best and not the best?" Proof that uh, you know, mm. he, he didn't didn't really love her, and there's and you know, they married um, when he was eighteen and she was twenty six, really unusual for the time, and she was clearly already pregnant when they got married um, because she had a child six months later. So there's always always been speculation that it was kind of a shotgun marriage. He didn't really want to marry her. Blah blah blah. They you know didn't really love each other. There's no real solid evidence for any of that but um the second best bed thing well the thing about the second best bed is that the the first best the first best bed the best bed um would have gone would have been a part of the house would have been sort of attached to the house and when the house was left to Susanna the first bed would have would have been part of that bequest and also um in the period it was quite common for the the guest bed to be the best bed um, and so their marital bed probably was the second best bed so it was probably the bed that they shared um, and not some kind Still, of you slight hope her. you get something more from your husband than well, just a bed well it was quite common you? for gross that you're bequeathing a bed to someone yeah well a bed <laughs> at the time a, like so we're talking about there's a difference between like the mattress that you sleep in yeah, right. and the bedstead, which is like a big wooden thing, which would often be worth as much as a small house. Wow, um, quite a lot of money. And the other thing is that it was it was the custom at the time that the ch- that children would get the primary, you know, the primary materials that were left in the in the bequest and the assumption was either that the wife would be supported then by the children or in Anne Hathaway's case, we believe that she actually had private, um, some private wealth. And so you, you sort of can't read too much into it. There's other, there's actually other fascinating stuff in uh, William Shakespeare's will because he, he changed his will um, just a little bit before he died when he found out that uh, his younger daughter, Judith, her uh, 
fiance had actually gotten another woman pregnant um, just before the wedding. And this other woman very sadly died in childbirth along with her child. So, you know, she kind of, you know, wrote herself out of the picture. But um, then William Shakespeare changed his will and he... Uh, he drew up quite an elaborate entail, which basically meant that his future son-in-law would never get anything from his will. Ah, um, take he, that. Yeah, so he clearly was very, um, you know, cautious about this young man, as you would be, and wanted to make sure that his daughter would be provided for if and when this scurrilous fellow, uh, you know, ran off. Um, and, you know, I mean, you really can learn a lot from... That's kind of what you can do will. with a will, isn't it? You can sort of settle all scores. You can settle well, that's all what scores. what you want to do. <laughs> <And> you <can laughs> totally <laughs> Literally what yeah. you said off air yeah, before yeah. you came in. He's like, it's your way to tell people what you really think about them. <laughs> well, you know, other people have certainly some more idiosyncratic things than that. So, uh, but when Bonaparte died, he left. He so pe- people were really mad keen on Bonaparte's hair. Anytime he got his hair cut, people would scramble around and, and take the hair Gross. as, as um, uh, mementos. And we actually just, I think, two years ago, there was a collection in Melbourne that had samples of his hair. And it was actually stolen from a small museum in the Mornington Peninsula, as, as I recall. I don't think they've got it back. So, you know, if you come across a random sample of hair, it may possibly be Napoleon Bonaparte's. But he left, um, he was very clear in his will that he wanted his hair to be divided amongst his sort of close friends and relatives. They'd all get sent a sample of his hair. And above that, uh, he said, Marshan, who was his, um, his sort of uh, valet, what, shall preserve my hair and cause a bracelet to be made of it with a little gold clasp to be sent to the Empress Maria Louisa, to my mother, and to each of my brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, the Cardinal, and a larger one for my son. And he also left his son two watches with the chain of the Empress's hair and a chain of my own hair for the other watch. Marchand will have them made in Paris. So he really wanted his son to have a lot of his hair, which does seem a little bit creepy to us now, but it was really, you know... In what previous it, eras, it was very common to to give people a lock of hair, to to uh, take pe- people's hair, and to to really use hair. The, there's lots of elaborate jewellery made of woven yeah. hair, and mm. people would use it for sort of craft projects and things in a way that we find a bit a bit gross today. Um, but did I, the son get the bigger one because he's got fat wrists? Yeah, I'm not sure whether <laughs> it was like it was like the quantity is an is an honour, yeah. or if it yeah. was just <laughs> a, you know, the necessity. <laughs> Oh, and start losing weight, mate. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it was a little dig. It was a little digging from beyond the grave. Yeah. And uh, one of my favourite bequests is uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, author of Trevor, Treasure Island and Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde and, and other novels, actually left his birthday to a friend of his. So he had a friend whose birthday was the 25th of December, which is you know, an unfortunate birthday, and he said, uh, I do hereby transfer, transfer to the said A.H. Ide, his friend, all and whole of my rights and privileges to the 13th day of November, formerly my birthday, now hereby and henceforth the birthday of the said Mr A.H. Hyde. Oh, it wow. doesn't record. Did he take it? <laughs> Did he take record, it on board? It doesn't record whether his friend was grateful for the gift <laughs> of a new birthday or not. And uh, that, t- but still not as weird, not as weird as a certain uh, Solomon Sandborn, who was a hat maker in the United States. And after his death in 1871, he it was discovered to uh, have requested in his will that the skin from his body be used to make two drums. Oh. One of which was to have the Declaration of Independence written on it. <laughs> the other with the Pope's <laughs> universal prayer. And the drums were to be given to his fr- 
friend Warren Simpson, who was to play Yankee Doodle at sunrise <laughs> each Sunday, yeah. each June 17th at Bunker Hill, which is really quite an onerous <laughs> very patriotic <laughs> to leave to anyone. Oh, my God. Yeah. And look, you know, there, there have been lots of people who tried to do good, good things in their will, but it doesn't always work out. So a much more recent case, in 2012, Joan Edwards, who was a former nurse from Bristol, Bristol died leaving 520,000 pounds to, and I quote, whichever government is in office at the date of my death. <coughs> Pardon me, for the government to to in their absolute discretion to use as they may think fit, which wording which leaves things a little bit open because what ended up happening happening and this is probably not what she intended is that the Tories and Lib Dem coalition of the time decided to divide it proportionally between them for their party coffers to you know spend on party advertising and that sort of thing. Oh, no. um, there was a, there was a national outcry and both parties agreed to hand back the donation and rather boringly it was given to the exchequer to pay down the national debt. Oh, which, she used it to pay know, for the Christmas party. Well, yeah, well everyone was. Yeah. Like all her neighbours were like, I'm sure she would have, you know, preferred to, you know, she was a she was a midwife and surely she'd prefer to spend it on some kind of, you know, midwife services in the area or something. But uh, you know, that's that's not what happened. You've got to be careful. But my favourite one of this, and I will wrap up, yeah, in 1928, an anonymous donor established the National Fund, in this also in the UK, with a gift of five hundred thousand pounds at the time, to be held in trust until it was enough to pay off the entire national debt. That was what he wanted. He wanted to be able to pay off the entire national debt of the UK. Uh, the fund, which is managed by Barclays Bank, was worth $444 million as of January this year. Sadly, the growth of the UK's national debt has just slightly outpaced the fund and now stands at £1.5 trillion, <laughs> uh, more than 3,000 times the amount of the fund. So Barclays has been trying to um, get permission to release it and you know, uh, spend it on charities or something. But um, would have been better yeah. She would have been better off making a skin into a drum yeah. instead. <laughs> Thanks very much, Laura Sanders. We'll see you in a fortnight's time. Look forward to it. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Ian Lowe is Emeritus Professor of Science Technology at Griffith University. He's also the author of a new book, The Lucky Country, Reinventing Australia, published by UQP. Welcome to Triple R. Well, it's a pleasure, mate. <laughs> People know the phrase the lucky country. It's kind of in, into the vernacular, but they may be less familiar with the Donald Horn book from which it came. Who was Donald Horn and why was that book so significant? Well, Donald Horn was uh, a very interesting man. He'd uh, started studying at Sydney University but got uh, conscripted in World War II and never completed a degree. Um, and uh, did various things, worked in an advertising agency, uh, was a trainee diplomat for a while, and then became editor of the Bulletin magazine. And uh, the one of the few radical things that he did in his life, because he was a relatively conservative man, was removed from the Bulletin's masthead, which was still there in 1963 when he became editor, their slogan, Australia for the White Man. <gasps> And that was so shocking that a significant number of the Bulletin subscribers resigned in disgust. But uh, he spent one summer writing a book about Australia, reflecting on where we are and where we might go. And um, the publisher seized on the phrase, the lucky country, from his concluding chapter in which he said, 
Australia is a lucky country run by second-rate people who share its luck but are totally unaware of the world around them and are often taken by surprise. And later in his life he lamented the fact that the phrase the lucky country had been taken out of context by people who had either not read the book or not understood it. And he said at the time no one was in any doubt that the phrase was meant ironically. And uh, he said the book was really sounding three loud warnings about Australia's position in the world. And in the preface to the fifth edition in 1998, he said if he were writing it again, he'd repeat those warnings with the amplifying knob turned up. And what provoked me to write the book was uh, rereading it and finding that those three challenges are still unanswered. They've largely been ignored by what he called second-rate leaders. And um, we now have to face, as well as those three challenges that he identified, the environmental issues of recognising that we're not living sustainably. Mm. Well, one of those challenges is... Um, Horn emphasised Australia's need to face up to its geographical position in Asia. Now, that was in 1964, but... um I guess you could say that Australia really still hasn't done that, has it? I mean, the Abbott government in particular sort of emphasised how little had changed with that sort of looking back to England with knights and dames and all all the rest of it. That's absolutely right. And uh, while in 1964 when he wrote the book, if uh, anyone at school studied a foreign language, it was French. And if they did a second language, it was either Latin or German. That's changed a bit, but there's still about as many... Australian school students studying European languages as Asian languages. So at least half of them are still looking back to our European past rather than our our Asian future. And he lamented the fact that uh, all but the most ignorant politicians understand some of the diversity of Europe. They understand the hostility that there's been between France and Germany and the differences between Italy and Spain. But he said they make bland assertions about Asia as if it was a homogeneous entity. And of course, you know, even within countries like China and India, there's enormous diversity and tremendous uh, differences of social background. And uh, he said that we think of Asia just as an economic machine, somewhere where we can sell our our minerals and somewhere where we can buy cheap produce. And uh, that's as true today as when he wrote the book 50 years ago. Uh, Horn also called for a revolution in economic priorities, and that seems to have been something that's happened, but not in a way that he would have expected. We've had this sort of market-driven revolution. What kind of um, shift in economic priorities do you think we need now? Well, uh, he said the Australia he grew up in was a rather stupid country that exported uh, (laughs) minerals and agricultural produce to pay for the things we're not clever enough to make for ourselves. And we've actually gone backwards. Uh, When he wrote the book, manufacturing was about 27% of the Australian economy and about 30% of the workforce. Uh, Today it's about 7% of the economy and about 7% of the workforce. We don't even make T-shirts and sand shoes now, we we import them. We've run down our manufacturing. And his call was for us to invest in education and science so that we'd be competitive in the growth industries of the 21st century. And we've actually gone backwards. Uh, Public funding of science is at the lowest level for 30 years. The Abbott government's taken about $2 billion out of our, our science budget. Uh, the new head of CSIRO wants it to be a consulting company rather than public good applied science. And um, 
the current government is uh, not going ahead with the Gonski reforms, which are about ensuring that everyone in Australia has access to a decent education, however carelessly they chose their parents. So uh, <laughs> I think you know, if we're serious about being a lucky country and being in charge of our own destiny, we really need to ensure that every child is educated to the limit of their ability, not the limit of their parents' wallet or their parents' political clout. And we need to invest in research so that uh, we are producing the innovations that... Uh, make us more self-sufficient and more able to export rather than hoping people will continue to buy rocks. We're in, the middle of, <laughs> we're in the middle of an election at the moment and I think it's safe to say that it's been fairly uninspiring so Very far. Very underwhelming. Yeah, yes. um, as has uh, the last few of, I think, Australia's leaders because there seems to have been uh, pressure from the political machine rather than from the Australian public themselves uh, to get some vision for the country. Do you think we're going to see something anyone in the near future that's going to present a kind of vision for australia that could take us forward well the greens uh, are showing more signs of vision than uh, either of the major parties i think the uh, uh, I, I wrote a book chapter 25 years ago in which i said that the the politics of australia in the 20th century was dominated by an event that happened late in the 19th century, which was the formation of the Labor Party. And the politics of the 20th century was a struggle between the Labor Party and changing coalitions of conservative forces. You know, the free traders and protectionists and the Whigs and Tories subsumed their differences to fight the common enemy of socialism. Uh, and I said that probably the most significant political event of the 21st century was the formation late in the 20th century of Green Parties and uh, the increasingly cosmetic differences between the ALP and the Coalition are likely to be subsumed in the fight against the common enemy of the Greens because their vision is a world in which we live sustainably within natural systems and the old parties are still locked into the the illusion that you can have unlimited growth in a closed system and they're really just arguing about marginal adjustments in uh, how we earn our money and how we spend it. Hmm. Australia's been lucky enough to have some of the great environmental wonders of the world like the Great Barrier Reef. Are we about to lose them? Well, the Great Barrier Reef is in real danger. I mean, 97% of the reefs north of Cairns are, are bleached in the current bleaching event and uh, all of the science says that if we don't keep the increase in average global temperature below two degrees, uh, the Great Barrier Reef is doomed. And uh, other outstanding assets like the forest of Tasmania and the forest of Gippsland are in real trouble if uh, the climate change projections are right. So that means we need to take seriously the Paris Agreement. And uh, if you take Paris seriously, uh, the two degree limit means no new coal mines anywhere in the world ever. The one and a half degree limit means closing down some of the coal mines and coal-fired power stations earlier than is currently projected. So if we're serious about combating climate change, there really needs to be concerted action. We need to be on a path to get 100% renewable energy by 2030 and uh, electrify the transport system running that on renewables so that we've decarbonised the economy by 2050. And Interestingly, the people are ahead of the politicians. One and a half million Australians have solar panels on their roof. Half a million Australians are using solar hot water. The, the people are leading. It's time our leaders caught up. <laughs> <laughs> Lots to think about there. The book is The Lucky Country, Reinventing Australia. It's published by UQP. We've been talking to its author, Ian Lowe. Thanks so much for joining us. Real pleasure, mate. <laughs> 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, now, guys, before earlier we were talking about bees because you had a bee story I did. in the news, Jeff. The, bee, the queen bee was stuck in the boot of the car. Yes, and hilarity I, ensued. And I, well, oh, that reminded me of a story from my life, which in which there was often animals and hilarity ensuing. Uh, was this when you were growing up on Wolf Creek? Yeah, in Wolf Creek. No, <laughs> I grew up in the city, Jeff. Why do I say that? And Woodend isn't Wolf Creek. It's the place that we visited. Uh, so yeah, so like we had a farm, and my dad, as you may have gathered from some of the stories I've told about him, didn't really like to do things by the book. It was kind of his whole life's mission to not do things by the book. And uh, he kept bees on the farm and he wanted to bring the bees to Melbourne, to the house in Melbourne. And uh, so he just strapped them to the back of his... like a what do you call it trailer on the back of a car and drove them down the freeway. He's like, I'll oh, bring a hive. hive. Yeah, strapped stra- stra- a hive with the bees in the hive. And he's like, I'll just drive them down the freeway. Then as he was going down the freeway, he was like, Oh, the bees are leaving the hive, as they <laughs> might do <laughs> at 110 kilometers an hour on the Hume. So, th- so he gets off, pulls over the side of the road, and he's like, I'll just chuck the hive in the in the back of the car, in the back of my car. <gasps> what could go wrong? So in his in no. his yeah. And so and then he so he just puts on his bee hat and keeps driving. So he's got. <laughs> His bee hat on and he just drives with the beehive. So the bees start coming out of the hive in the car. But my dad doesn't care. He gets bitten by a lot of bees because he keeps bees and he's just a tough guy. And uh, he's just driving along, bee hat on, bees coming out of the hive. And a policeman spots him on the phone and he's like, oh, that's an odd-looking thing there, the bees. Anyway, so the policeman pulls him over and dad's like, oh, crap. And um, the policeman's going to my dad mimicking at him wind down the window to my dad like wind down the window wind down the window and my dad's shaking his head going no he wouldn't take his bee hat off he's going take the hat off dad's shaking his head and the policeman's going wind down the window my dad's going no and this goes on for like some time I believe until the policeman pulls out his thing to book like I'm going to book you and their dad goes oh well winds down the window and I reckon like a thousand (gasps) bees fly into this policeman's face and the policeman goes wind up the window And then my dad just speeds off into the distance with his bees in his car. What? 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 Such a great... No, wait, don't you... Stop. There are many questions (laughs) and follow-up statements that need to be made. Yes. What... At what stage did the police not put, like, oh, he's got a bee hat on, he's got a beehive next to him. And what? the car is full of bees. I don't know. At what point? I think the policeman thought, oh, like, this guy, he's doing something that's clearly illegal, I'm going to find him. But then at the point the bees were flying into his face, we're like, actually, stuff this. Like, this is just not worth my time. Why would he want to pull just the have window a, a vision down? of the policeman say, hello, hello. Yeah. <laughs> what have we got here? <laughs> bees. <laughs> anyway, so then we had to have the bloody beehive in our backyard at home in the city for ages. I'm pretty sure it was illegal. I don't know. Um, and you, there was parts of our backyard you couldn't walk in because bees have a flight path and the flight oh. path was directly in our backyard was quite small. And the neighbours would occasionally come over and go, oh, I think there's uh, I think some bees might have um, settled in your tree. And Dad would be like, oh, yeah, I'll look into that. And we're like, meanwhile, there's three beehives in our backyard. Anyway. That was my childhood. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia.
Well, that's by far the most sophisticated sounding of our... It's very soothing. I love it. Mm. It is, and it's by way of introducing Gerard Elson, who's coming from Readings to talk to us about books. How are you going? I'm very well, thanks, guys. How are you? Very well. Um, Today we're talking about Men, a novel of cinema and desire by Marie Dariesque. How was that? I think that's pretty spot on, (laughs) as far as I'm I'm aware. (laughs) Um, She's the author of... People probably might know her novel Pigtails, which is a huge kind of um, bestseller. What else can you tell us about her? Yeah, she's um, been. She has a number of novels, almost nine, I think. Now, this is her third one published uh, through Text Publishing in Australia, and um, this one's been translated by Penny Houston, uh, the Melbourne-based translator. Uh, she does all kinds of really interesting things. She was a psychoanalyst uh, for eight years or so, uh, from two thousand six to about. 2014-ish. She is also a writer. Uh, She had a bit of attention uh, in the light of the Charlie Hebdo um, tragedy. She got in touch with them immediately in the wake of that and basically offered her services uh, as a writer, but also she just basically went into the office and started replying to emails and things like that, knowing that in the wake of something like that, the administrative kind of stuff is the first thing that's going to be piling up enormously and also is probably... People like it's not going to be the main priority for a lot of uh, of them. So she's um, yeah. Though anyway, so this novel, however, is uh, it's the second novel of hers to feature the protagonist Solange. Um, her previous book it was called All the Way, that focused on her from the ages of about ten to fourteen and the kind of rampant sexual awakening that this young woman goes through in uh, a small rural French village. Uh, She's now in her 30s and she's in Hollywood uh, as an actor who basically (laughs) is described at one point as um, she's the the French woman, you know, the exotic kind of foreigner, sexy foreigner who gets gets to say the titles before she dies at the beginning of a Matt Damon film. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. So so. it's it's kind of a bit satirical. I understand that there's um, there's a George Clooney character. There is, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's a character throughout it, basically. So it's essentially a novel, uh, well, partly about, well, desire, as the title said, but passion, all-consuming, mad passion kind um, versus love. So she draws quite a, a sharp distinction between love. She says, love, you can work, you can have a normal life. Passion is completely, it destroys you, it's a nightmare. Uh, so Solange in this falls in passion, in mad passion, with uh, with a, an actor, uh, Kuhuesu, who is a African-Canadian who's made it, who's decided that he's going to... He's sick of playing second-tier Jedis and cops in Michael Mann films. He's <laughs> going to... Um, he's going to direct his, his masterpiece, which is going to be uh, an adaptation of Conrad's Heart of Darkness shot in the Congo. Um, and so this is all about... So he's kind of in love with his project. She's in love with him. In passion with him. In passion with yeah. him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and so it's about race and sex then? Is that the sort of the main There's theme? surprisingly little sex in the book, yeah. uh, to be honest. But, <laughs> but you can read various other books of hers if you want a lot of sex, <laughs> sure. um, certainly. Um, but uh, definitely it's about race. Um, it's She does really interesting things with it. Um, the character of Solange, she's kind of ignorant, I suppose, about a lot of things in a way that a great many people, a lot of us are, that we all kind of are before we're ever 
kind of encounter something, ever have to think really hard about it, ever have to learn about something, I suppose. So she kind of falls madly in passion <laughs> uh, with, with Kuhuesu and begins learning all about his history, um, all of the... Uh, you know, so he's researching the history of the Congo, all of... He's trying to, um, you know, in one sense, make Heart of Darkness less racist somehow while still making it all about the racist stereotypes that that book is predicated upon, all of the baggage that white people bring to Africa, I suppose. Like she sort of says, people just, white people think of Africa and they think of darkness and they think of elephants and that's all. And um, so he's really interested in in cliche and, and things. But, um, but as, as is Darius as a writer, all of her books have kind of dealt in some way with, with cliche. However, it's while it is satirical, it's not a farce. I suppose it kind of sounds like Pigtails certainly is a very grotesque kind of farce. Um, Pigtails is about a, a woman turning into a pig. A woman, yeah, a, a beautiful young sex worker who metamorphoses into a sow, essentially. Um, <laughs> so she's definitely done that kind of writing before. Uh, but this this is not, um, it's not like that at all. It's satirical, but it's not, not farcical. Um, I... I I mean, I, I guess, you know, a, a French writer who's associated with Charlie Hedbo writing about sexuality and race, it does maybe send off some alarm bells. I mean, what, what, yeah. what does she say about race? Um, it's, well, it's, she's interesting. She's not really a, you know, a kind of message writer. She's someone who I guess really gets into dramatising all of these Com- all of this kind of complicated stuff, you know, and um, and both of them, both of the characters have their kind of baggage. So for Solange, of course, she's a, a a beautiful foreign woman trying to make a go and get decent roles in Hollywood. Of course, she's continually typecast as either you know a bitch or a sort of sexy waitress or something. Essentially, um, Kuhuesu, of course, it's the black, you know, him being a, an ambitious young black. Actor wanting to make a wanting to make serious art, uh, and uh, so a lot of this is about um, it's, it's kind of a woman a, a novel about a woman coming to the realization that she's white and all that that entails. <laughs> yeah, you right. know? So that's um, it's a different kind of metamorphosis that she undergoes. I suppose a completely psychic one as as you know she becomes less ignorant about these things so there's a, a scene in the book where they've been to a uh, been to a gathering where they're meeting about this Joseph Conrad adaptation and it all seems to be falling apart Sean Penn's come back and said no he can't play Marlowe Anne Hathaway's too busy to have a role in it the guy no one wants to to pony up the money to um to ensure George Clooney spending three days in a cave in the middle of the Congo um so he also becomes very very sullen at this party and on the drive home just stops talking to her so she's trying to get him out of the car and he's just being this big leaden lump uh and then suddenly there's police there and they're pulling him off and they're pushing him slamming onto the bonnet of the car and saying what's this man doing to you you know are you are you okay miss and all of this so it's she's constantly has these experiences. I wanted to ask that, actually. Is it kind of a story about race through the eyes of kind of modern America, given that it's set in America, but you kind of have characters that come from different countries and have different experiences of races, race in their own countries? Like, does that come into it as well? Or is it race relations as Perry's kind of contemporary LA, say? Um, no, it's probably more the former, I yeah. think. It's, um, yeah, and it's, it's Solange is an interesting character because, like Dariesque, she uh, grew up in, in Basque, Basket. Oh, right. Um, okay. in, so she's, um, and in, you know, she describes in the book, it's described as the Basque people are kind of the Africans of Europe, you know, yeah. is the way that she considers it. And, um, but still, she does go through this process of gradual awakening um, as to exactly what it means to be 
in Kuhueso's situation. Mm. Um, however, she still is madly, passionately obsessed with him and um, she starts giving up her own work, you know, work, great work opportunities. She quits yoga, etc., just to be more available for him because sometimes she doesn't hear from him for 10 days, you know, and then he'll, he'll get in touch and suddenly, you know, that's described as it's, it's not a reply to a te- the text message from 10 days ago, rather it's the, the return of the hero, you know. Um. Does it leave you kind of wanting passion in your life or does it make you think <laughs> <laughs> passion um, is a great disaster? <laughs> well, um, look, it's, I think we've all been there probably to some extent, right? And I, I think I'd t- probably tend to fall in line with the, uh, with the opinion that Dariusk says that is that love is fantastic passion it's kind of exquisite but it's exquisite torture yeah. and um you know a little bit of that great but um it's not really tenable in the long term is it? Um, <laughs> i mean when you put it like that it does sound very very french it's, yes definitely I mean, <laughs> how does it come across in the translation it's a, it's a fantastic translation and um i think it's probably just on the pure level of the prose too it's probably the the finest novel of hers that I've read as far as that goes as well. Like, it's incredibly well-crafted. The bit... I hope it's not spoiling too much to say that ultimately the film does get off the ground and the parts describing the the Congo shoot and the enormous attention to detail, all of the things that are going on there, it's this fantastically kind of choreographed passage of this book, um, which is really... You know, it comes pretty late in the piece. Um, And it's this, yeah, amazing, um, you know, sort of set-piece towards, you know, climactic set piece of the book and, and that's just through the sheer power of, of her writing. Yeah, right. Okay, mm. the book is Men, a Novel of Cinema and Desire by Marie Dariesk. <laughs> we'll be talking to Rada Elson. Um, thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.